A Visit with Louis Agassiz. In this presentation, we will ask if the fossil record is clear evidence that all life forms today have a single common ancestor. To grapple with this question, we're going to bring in a voice from the past, that of a truly great biologist, Dr. Louis Agassiz. Agassiz was born in Switzerland, the son of an assistant pastor in a small village parish. He utterly loved nature, not from reading books, but from exploring the great outdoors. He was educated at the universities of Heidelberg and Munich. Professor Georges Cuvier, the great French anatomist, was one of Agassiz's teachers. Upon Cuvier's death, Agassiz became curator of Cuvier's collections. Eventually, Agassiz came to America, became professor of natural history at Harvard University, where he founded the great Museum of Comparative Zoology. He is still recognized today as the developer of the concept of the Ice Age. Of course, we can't resurrect great scientists using molecular biology or something, but perhaps by using their own documents and a bit of imagination, we can give it a shot. Let's see how this works with Professor Agassiz. Our question today sounds simple. Does the fossil record show us macroevolution? What would you say to that, Dr. Agassiz? Ah, uh, what's that you're talking about? Macroevolution. I've never heard that term. I thought Darwin's theory was called evolution. What's, what's macroevolution? I never used that word. Well, we start with Darwin's theory. He saw populations reproducing rapidly, but with limited resources, his theory was that limited resources threw the members of the population into competition with each other. Yeah, that's right. And uh, the individuals in the population all varied among themselves genetically, just like the students in your class here. So in an intense competition, where some individuals have to die out, the ones that survive are called the fittest. Nature selects the fittest to survive. And to reproduce. Uh, well, I don't know how much you want to talk about such things with all these youthful minds scattered amongst us here. Professor Agassiz, how refreshingly Victorian. Well, anyway, we in the 20th century have named this process of natural selection causing the fittest to survive. We call it microevolution. The students understand all about that, sir, and they were shown how microevolution might generate two species from one over a period of, say, thousands of years. Yeah, well, if you've read Darwin's book, uh, that while I hear that nobody really reads the origin of species anymore. Is that true? Uh, yes, yes it is true. But that doesn't mean his book isn't famous, sir. Most of us 
don't read the Bible anymore either, but that's a famous book. Yeah, yeah. well, if, if you've read his book, you know he talks about millions and millions of years for microevolution to run with. So he, he argues that if you give variation, natural selection, and the resulting speciation process, millions and millions of years you can start with a few primitive life forms and you can end up with a wide diversity of modern organisms. That was his theory. That's how he got famous for coming up with that idea. Well, sir, that long-term extrapolation of the evolutionary process is what we call macroevolution. The idea of going not just from one species of butterfly to two species of butterflies, but from microbes to man over millions of years with lots and lots of biological inventions thrown in, that's macroevolution. We're talking about inventions like, like arms, kidneys, red blood cells, all created by mutation and natural selection over millions of years. Well, yes, yes, if you extrapolate his basic process, you get a diversity of inventions and species for much simpler forms. Well, Dr. Agassiz, do you believe that that happened? Oh, macroevolution? No, I'm I'm sorry. I can I can see it all on paper, but I just I don't see it in the natural world. Well, sir, that that's an interesting contrast: plausibility on paper versus evidence in nature. The students have been following Darwin's arguments in a textbook, but they haven't had a chance to actually look for evidence in the real world. Ach, Detweiler, these kids will never, never become biologists by sitting around reading books. They have to get up off their butts, s'il vous plaît, and get out into God's theater. They must see how he acted out his creation. Of course we can't go back in time and watch what he did. But nature has the hints if these kids of yours are willing to go out and look for them. Close the books. Close the books. Get out into nature and look around. I understand, sir, that you and Darwin went out looking around, and that you in particular went back to some of the same places that Darwin had been in order to examine the same organisms that he looked at. We call that repeatability in science. That's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, except that after I saw what he saw, I didn't come to the same conclusion. Right, so can we consider some of his evidence and hear your comments on it? Well, you know that my thing is fossil fish. I spent years looking at fossil fish. In a flood or an avalanche, the organisms existing at a given time can be suddenly buried under large amounts of sediment. And if the organisms had hard parts like shells or bones, 
those things could petrify into sedimentary rocks. And then after many years of laying down these rocks, they somehow get exposed. You can look down through them and see what fossils they contain. You usually see simpler invertebrate forms near the bottom and more complex forms at the top. That's what Lyle said. Darwin took these observations and he said that simpler forms that are older and near the bottom of the record gave rise to the more complex forms at the top and they did it by his process of evolution or, or macroevolution as you call it. The students here are familiar with Darwin's view of the fossil rock layers but what's your view of that data? Well, I like the ideas of the greatest anatomist who ever lived. Have your students ever heard of Georges Cuvier? He saw something in the rock record that Darwin ignored when developing his theory. Cuvier saw catastrophe, sudden burial, massive death, so we believe that there was a series of catastrophes that created all of these strata. After each catastrophe, the organisms in the layer beneath it became extinct. Then Cuvier said, new organisms would migrate in from somewhere else, and that is how you get a whole new set of organisms after the catastrophe is over. Well, where did the new organisms migrate from? They weren't anywhere else in the fossil record at that time. Yeah, I know. That was, that was a weakness of Cuvier's thinking. He was early 1800s, you know. They didn't like to talk about God and creation back then. So your view of where the newer organisms came from is what? Oh, they were created by God. He created new life forms after each worldwide catastrophe that wiped out the old forms. So you believe in the special creation of all living things? Yeah, God created each species separately. He did it at least several times following major breaks in the fossil record. Why couldn't Darwin's interpretation work? You know, slow change from bottom to top of the fossil record? Simple. Darwin's theory involves gradual changes. The fossil record doesn't show gradual changes. You have these new forms that just pop up from nowhere, and then they just become extinct. Darwin can't explain the popping. Well, Darwin's followers claim that the gradual changes he talked about only happen at the edges of population ranges, where the natural selection forces are the strongest. So these gradual changes would happen altogether in small areas and then spread across the land, replacing an old population with a new and a very different one. 
then the new population would stay around unchanged for many years. Their theory is called punctuated equilibrium, and some Harvard professors have popularized it. Punctuated equilibrium, eh? At my school. Yes. What do you have to say about that? Hmm. Detweiler, I would not call that a theory. I'd call it an idea. Maybe a hypothesis. Why? Because they are trying to argue that Darwin is correct while predicting that we will never find evidence of his gradual change. That is very disappointing. It is even perverse. If you can't find evidence for it anywhere, how will you ever know if it's true? It's not based on any data. But, sir, that's what modern evolutionists would say about your view, that your creator is not visible or approachable experimentally. I know that, but there is a big difference here. What's the difference? My theory expects the fossil record to be the way we find it. Your equilibrium folks are trying to predict something that the fossil record doesn't show them. I'm sorry, Cuvier was right on this one. You can't slowly change one animal into another. It ruins the integrity of the existing animal. It makes it extinct, not improved. It's interesting, sir, how you carefully link your ideas to what the fossil record actually shows. That really is science. Sometime we must talk about the creation event found in the Bible and the multiple creation events that you find in the rocks. Yeah, well, I, I hear the students these days have short attention spans, so perhaps we should stop for now. Professor Agassiz, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today. You've reminded us not to disregard old data just because new molecular data is now available. Well, thank you, Professor Detweiler. Now you tell those students to get away from their TV sets and computers and get out into nature and look at the actual stuff that the arguments are built on. And have them look around for some fossil fish, yes? It's good stuff. And remember, Darwin was a smart cookie, okay? Don't just dump on his theory because you don't see it in the Bible, yeah? See if you can explain the facts in some other cogent way. Well, Professor Agassiz, thank you for warning our students. Sir, I want them to be just as critical as you do.